time that we've done this. Uh, we haven't done it for a long time. Let's have a salute to this month's masterpiece of slob art. A salute to slob art, an advancing art form which is now beginning to engulf an entire Western civilization. And so, the Slob Art Excellence Award of the Month. Yes, that's what we want. The sound of a scratchy Beethoven fifth. And here's this month's slob art masterpiece. It comes illustrated in complete four-color illustrations. And it's a magnificent uh, bottle shaped like what looks like a fat violin. And out of the top of it pours whatever you want to put in it. Wild strawberry yoo-hoo, perhaps. And it's entitled, A Delightful Addition to Your Bar or Mantle, Beethoven's Famous Fifth. Provides flowing entertainment. This unusual decanter... Holds your favorite stock. Just pour in the strains of Beethoven's magnificent fifth. Fill the air. Would you like a little more, uh, just a little more of this cheap Italian wine, friend, and then you pour it? <laughs> yes, it will hold a full one-fifth of a gallon of your favorite potable, made of handsome ceramic, a fine gift, and a magnificent salute to Beethoven's great art. Oh, my God, how far is it going to go? That's uh, a slob art masterpiece for this month, uh, if you'll please. Uh, well, you didn't hear it, Keith. You can now buy a bottle. You know, it's for your bar, and it's shaped like a violin. And uh, whatever juice you put in, it pours out of the top of it. And when you pour it, the sound of Beethoven's fifth fills the air. You know, it's a, how's that for sickening making? <laughs> Gee, where is it ever going to go, man? <laughs> now, that wouldn't be a bad idea if the sound of Quincy Jones filled the air. You know, I mean, but, uh, after all, Beethoven said, you know. Dear Mr. Shepard, you just don't make any sense to me at all. I'm a John Gambling listener, and I can't understand what it is you're talking about. You have a hideous radio program making all those terrible sounds, and I don't know how that otherwise responsible radio station allows that jabbering of yours to get on the air. With such nice people as Martha Dean and Alfred Stan and John Gambling Jr. that Martha Stan.
right, that's enough. That's enough. That's enough. That's enough. Yeah, giving the troops a little bit too much there. I want them men's fed. Get these troops fed. We'll move on out. By the way, speaking of uh, getting the troops fed here, did uh, did you see a little note there? All right, this is something I've been suspecting for years. Chicanery is everywhere. Everywhere you just can't beat it. The chicanery, yeah. A little place down the village they serve it with tomato sauce and nice mushrooms. It says the City Department of Consumer Affairs has pasted two condemned stickers on a scale used to weigh draftees <laughs> at the Armed Forces Induction Center down on Whitehall Street. The scale is so inaccurate that men 15 pounds over the maximum weight might be declared fit for military duty if they stepped on it. <laughs> Probably many have been. Each time the scale was tested, it registered a different weight. Well, I, I've seen them kind of scales before, friends. They use them in carnivals. Uh, yeah, the guy stands off to one side. He says, let me guess your weight. Wait, can I guess your weight? And he always guesses your weight. He's got a little thing in his hand, you know, that he operates. He just sets it at, you know, he can have you weigh 22 pounds if he wants to. And by George's scale, he'll say it. Each time the scale was tested, it tested differently. In addition, a man who stood toward one corner of the scale could make it register a lower weight than it showed when he stood toward another corner. <laughs> have you have you suspected that about scales? Anyway, it says, under selective service regulations, the department said, men five feet six inches or shorter who weigh more than 197 pounds cannot be inducted. And so a lot of guys suddenly find that they really lost a lot of weight. They must feel groovy. You know, some guy, you know, he tips the scale at 205 pounds and he's five feet three. He jumps on the scale and it comes out 130. He's gee, <laughs> he feels great. He also has got two years ahead of him. <laughs> you know, speaking of, of, of those uh, scales, you know, it's a funny thing. Uh, you, you hear about the, you know, the army induction. Uh, you know, I've, I've, uh, all the stuff I've read, uh, novels and so on about the army, hardly ever talk about you know how it really feels to get inducted. I mean, the actual moment of induction. No, it's it's an interesting feeling. It isn't exactly what you think it is. You know, everybody says, "Oh, well, well, it must be." No, not necessarily. It's a you get so involved in the whole business of it that the, that the actual significance of it escapes you until later, and then of course then it's too late, and uh, you know it's, it's like pregnancy. It's just far too late sometimes. But nevertheless, I I, I remember I, I was showing up for induction. So you don't mind if I tell a little story about being inducted, and uh, it's you know it's the same every place and. I showed up for induction. I got this letter, and it said uh, the the inductee will appear at the following address at 8 a.m. on time sharp, and will prepare for uh, examinations and induction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, attached to it were two bus tickets. Of course, the premise being that you may not get inducted, in which case you could take the bus ride home. So uh, yeah, they had two bus tickets clipped to this paper. <laughs> And uh, they were they were like little government things. I guess you give them to the bus guy, and he he cashes them or something. So, sure enough, I and of course I was uh, not in bus range. So anyway, I came all the way in, into the induction centers uh, at the quarter to eight, and bright and sharp, and rotten day, and the rain is coming down. It's, every moment in a guy's life, I mean, that is really classically important, is generally accompanied by significant ominous weather. Oh yeah. 
this is true. I mean, I, I, I've gone to more weddings when thunder and lightning was crashing high in the heavens. And, uh, you know, I mean, you knew right away from the start that God was trying to say something to somebody, you know. He has to go all the way and hit somebody with lightning before they understand it, you know, an actual shot, a lightning bolt. But uh, and nevertheless, I, I, I take weather as great, you know, a lot of omens in weather. You, you get very conscious of weather, you know, when you're a flyer. And uh, you see a lot of it, and boy, I mean, I mean, really see it. You, know, you look out out of the windshield of the plane, you see a thunderstorm banging down about four miles or five miles away to your left, and you see a snowstorm about eight miles to your right, and you see a hurricane coming directly on you. You become very, very conscious of weather, and you can see specific uh, weather phenomena occurring, you know, different areas around you. So uh, I've always been conscious of weather. And it began with this. And then up to this point, I didn't give a damn, you know, weather, you know. What, what a kid never worries about weather, you know, unless the football game's going to get washed out or your tennis game or something like that. That's all. Well, I arrived to get inducted, and uh, it's uh, 8 o'clock in the morning. We're supposed to be there, see, and it's now quarter to 8, so I figured I'd be there early, and uh, which is silly. And uh, yes, yes, I mean, the, you learn about that early in your life, too, you know, that business, the, the being early syndrome. If I get there early, maybe I'll get a good serial number, uh, some nuttiness like that. <laughs> so anyway, I arrived at quarter to eight, and by the time I arrived, there was already a line of guys that must have been, oh, I'd say mm, 20, 30 miles long, roughly, and it wound down these stairs and out around the side of this building and halfway around the block. It was a big induction center, and they had a mass call. You know, it's like... Uh, a mass execution. They uh, they just decided, let's get them all over with it one time, you know, instead of waiting dribs and drabs, we'll get them all in there. So we're lined up, and I showed up at quarter to eight, and I said, holy smokes, you know, there's a fantastic line. So I get down at the end of the line, and I'm standing behind this tall, skinny guy with overalls, and I wasn't there like eight milliseconds, and guys started to form up behind me. You know, there's more guys showing up. And now I'm right in the middle of the line. I can see a line going back of me, and it stretches all the way to the Wisconsin border. And uh, the other end of the line, I didn't have no idea where the other end of the line went. You know, it just sort of wound into this building and up, see? And I was in the end of this mysterious line. And uh, I've often <laughs> you know, I've often thought, you know, that, that a great short story would be, uh, especially if it's an SF or possibly even just a fantasy short story, of an enormous line. And you're standing in this eternal line. And uh, the rumors keep going up and down the line as to what reward is at the end. You know, what, what you're waiting in line for. And the rumors conflict constantly. You know, you're, you're standing in line, all of a sudden the guy says, Hey, did you hear that? And I said, What? He says, hey, Did you hear what they're doing at the end? Man, you wouldn't believe it, what they're giving out at the end of the line. Boy, am I glad I'm here early. And you say, What is it? He says, I'm not going to tell you, Mac. And uh, then you pass it back to the guy behind you. And then five minutes later, the guy ahead of you, he's got a new rumor. He says, oh, my God, did you hear what they're doing up there? He says, no. Oh, boy, let's get out of here before it happens to us. It's too bad. They won't let us out now. Oh, man. And then you pass that behind. You know, next thing you know, rumor after rumor said eternal line. Well, most of us uh, have a, have a, we have a, you know, there's a two-way edge in man. One of them, he, he loves to get in lines. Yes, they do. If, listen, if you think I'm kidding, you get seven of your friends once and stand in line in front of something and within eight and a half minutes you've got 15 other people formed up behind you. Now, what is it about? 
uh, just just turn around and say uh, they're giving it out today. And uh, you don't have to say what it is. <laughs> Everybody suspects one day he's going to hit the total jackpot. Might as well face it right And uh, It's about time for station break here pretty soon. If not, uh, at least we have a ding-dong in there. Please hit the money button, if you will, please. There's a promise for America. A bright new promise just for you. Chrysler Plymouth Dealers, your Chrysler Plymouth Dealers of New York, New Jersey, and Fairfield County. Act now while the price freeze is still on. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Oh, that was, that was pretty. This is W.O.R. New York. We have another one here. If you're thinking about winter tires, think belted, I mean belted, gripper, 780 from General Tire. Bring them bugles up big, Tony. Big, big, big. That's it. This is a big spot. See the experts at your local General Tire store for all the facts on the belted Gripper 780 winter tire designed and engineered to match today's new car tires. The belted Gripper 780 snow tire with polyester cord for strength, fiberglass belts for mileage, and self-cleaning cleats for traction. Sing it out, man. Sing it out. Yes, mount your Gripper 780 snow tires today. Then go in snow for General Face to Toe. The Belted Gripper 780 sold where you see the big red General Tire G sign near you in Brooklyn C. Bruce at Cannon Tire Company, 2360 Flatbush Avenue. Yeah, that was nice. Gee, that was exciting. Can I have them horns again? Just let me hear the horns. Oh, that's good. That's the way it should be every time you walk in your house. Thank you. That bugle call, of course, is to get your attention. So you say, okay, you've got it. Now what do you want? I want to tell you about a telephone number you can call to get information about VISTA, that's Volunteers in Service to America, by calling toll-free from anywhere in the country. I didn't know that. Well, now you know. And the number to call is... Area code 800-424-8580. Would you repeat that number? Certainly, my good man. The entire number is... Area code 800, followed by 424-8580. I, I'm standing in line. I, I might as well tell you the story about this uh, brief uh, moment of in, in the induction center. So I'm standing in line. It's quarter to eight, and the guy with the overalls is standing ahead of me, and I can see this line snaking ahead, and, and, and it, sort of, it sort of fades off into the distance. It's so long, and it just, just fades off. And uh, behind me, the line fades off in back of me. So it goes around a corner, and it's gone somewhere down LaSalle Street. This was in the middle of Chicago. And so, boom. 
the lightning is is playing high overhead. Kaboom! Blah! Boom! Blah! Boom! Boom! God is bowling up there in the eternal bowling alley in the sky. And boy, he's putting them in the one-three pocket. And, uh, I, of course, at that point, I'm beginning to be a little aware of the weather. It's getting gray, and the tremendous clouds are scudding overhead. An occasional lightning bolt. Kaboom! This guy turns around from in front of me and says, Yeah, he says, well, that's a bad sign. I said, what, what do you mean, a bad sign? See, I, I was not even, the, you know, the idea of bad signs had no play in my life. You see, my old man never believed in luck or anything. He just believed in pull. He says, if you got pull, you'll make it. He never believed me. You know, <laughs> that's, another, that's one of the great folk uh, beliefs. Folk, uh, one of the great folk beliefs that's never, you know, uh, actually uh, uh, categorized as a folk belief is an almost, in fact, it is a mystical religious belief in it ain't what you know, it's who you know. Every guy believes that if he gets to know an important man, he will automatically become important himself <laughs> somehow. And, uh, and uh, nevertheless, this is, you know, this is, my old man used to say that. He said, ah, oh, come on. His explanation on why guys were always getting promoted at the office was fo- the following explanation. He'd be sitting down at the table, you know, at supper time, and he's in front of this uh, white uh, porcelain table we had, you know, with the nicks on it. And uh, he's sitting there with a can of Valentine's beer or something in his mitt. And he's wearing his BVDs with about five strategic buttons off, you know. And he's just sitting there seeing. He's looking bugged. And finally, he, you know, you, have, you ever, have you ever been bugged all the time, waiting for somebody to ask you what you're bugged about? <laughs> all right, see? So he's sitting there. And, and it, it just ooze out of him. My old lady would know when he, she'd, she'd have her cue, you see. She knows that she's supposed to finally say this. And so she's over hanging over the sink, you know, with a Brillo pad, and finally she says, all right, what's, what's the trouble? Nothing. Dead silence, say, well, obviously, you know, I say, she's sitting there and her face is purple, and he's got this can of beer. <laughs> he's sucking it. Boy, he's drinking his beer like he's mad at it. <laughs> finally, she says, well, now, Something seems to be troubling you. This is the understatement of the century. And he's sitting there like a human boil. She says, something seems to be troubling you. What happened at the office? Nothing! Dead silence. And, of course, the kids know this is shut-up time. Don't say nothing. Keep your trap shut or you'll ever get a mouthful of fist, you know? The old man's level dump his mashed potatoes right on your head. Finally, she comes over and says, uh, Well, uh, I thought we'd go visit the... This is her way of getting at it, finally. She says, I thought we'd go visit Ernie and Bernice tonight. I don't want to talk to that stoop tonight! She says, all right, what's... All right, what, let it, what is it now? Tell her, what, what's the problem now? What happened today? You wouldn't believe it. Who do you think got the assistant chief clerk's job today? 
Well, this is a rhetorical question. She's not supposed to answer, you know. So she's ladling out the gravy. Who do you think? I mean, who's the most stupid guy in the office, right? Who? That's the one, right? That's the one that gets it, right? Well, who was it? Guess who? Sudak. Zudok! Well, you know, the old lady, she doesn't know who Zudok is. He's just one of the guys at the office. It's one of those mysterious names the old man was always mad at. Zudok. I'll tell you. It ain't what you know, it's who you know. Oh, yeah, poor Zudok someplace, you know. <laughs> he probably didn't know even his own wife. And they promoted it, but that doesn't matter. See, the old man would never concede that Zudok's got more talent than he has. It's Zudok's got pull. It's, I'm probably ruffling a lot of feathers right now because there's a lot of guys who listen to this show who really seriously believe that if they somehow got close to Mayor Lindsay, they would become a beautiful person. Personally. <laughs> no, there's a real belief in this stuff, you know. And so the old man finally sitting there Drinks his beer. He says, oh, boy. Guy works himself. Works himself to the bone. Who put in the new... Who put in the new system about the... About the bottle count? Huh? Me, that's right. That's who. Don't I get credit for it? No. Zudok gets the job. I'll tell you why. His wife is a friend of Gallagher's wife. That's why. This is putting it on my old lady. Now, now it's my mother's fault for not knowing the boss's wife. <laughs> so she sits down and ladles out the Franco-American spaghetti. He's sitting there, bugged. <laughs> you know... And I'm sitting there as a kid. I'm thinking about this thing. <laughs> and right away, I'm, <laughs> I'm figuring, geez, I'm lost already. All I know is Flick and Bruner. You know, I'm never going to get anywhere, you know, knowing Flick and Bruner and Schwartz. Where am I going to go? And then the old man, he would make these fantastic rhetorical statements. He would turn and he'd say to all of us, Look, it doesn't make any difference how smart you are. I guess he's telling this to me, see. It doesn't make any difference. It's who you know. Now, of course, the old man always prided him. On, on, on the other hand, then he would turn right around and say this. I'll tell you there's one thing they can't ever say about me. I was never a company fink. <laughs> Which means, you know, that he always told... <laughs> He always told the boss to go fly a kite. Any time the boss came around and asked him whether they needed a new pencil sharpener, you know. And so they <laughs> So there's always this constant thing, see. And so I'm standing back at this farmer, and I'm getting more folk wisdom, which, by the way, generally has some kind of basis in truth. So the farmer turns to me, and he's wearing his, this overalls, and he's looking up the sky, the two of us. Boom! Another crash of lightning comes out over the lake, see, and he says, That's bad sign. Indiana farmer. Bad sign. My God, I wonder how the cows are doing. That's a bad sign? Yep. 
Well, I didn't realize how bad it was. Until the line, after having inched forward like an arthritic snail, hour after hour after hour, it is now one o'clock in the afternoon, and the line has now reached the door of the building. See, I figured inside the door was where they had a desk, and they stamped you either in or out, right? The big building. And so finally, me and Ruth, who was this farmer, we get to the door at last. And you can see, the, you know, the guy that's ahead of him finally gets inside. And all the while, we've been waiting outside. Since quarter to eight, it's been raining. Cats and dogs. And every ten minutes, boom! Another bolt of lightning. God is telling us, don't go in. We get to the door, and Ruth turns around. He's got a funny look on his face. We've been waiting to get inside that door for like, you know, five, six hours. I look inside the darkness of this place, and the line goes through a long hall. It goes up a long flight of stairs. We ain't anywhere near the end of the line. This building is just the front. This line probably extends all the way to Murmansk. And so, hours go by. We're working our way up the staircase. And we, and we always figured that if you got to the top of the stairs, that's where the desk was. The line just turned left. It just continued on. This line went up, would you believe it, 14 floors. And got nowhere. Until finally, we're still looking the same as we had since quarter to eight. It is now three o'clock in the afternoon. And I finally arrive at the first desk. There's a sergeant sitting there. He's in, a, you know, in uniform. Just give me your papers. Hand your papers face up. All right, you men, give it to us face up. Don't wrinkle your papers. Put them down on the desk. And when I call your name, move on to my right. Rupus Appleby. He's got Rupus Appleby's paper. Rupus says, yeah. He's already in the Army. Roof moves on. Shepard J.P. Yep. I move on. I figured I'm making it, see? He gives me my paper back, which, you know, I'd give it to him. He gives it back. This time he's clipped five other papers to it. So we move like a snail around the next corner. And now there's three guys sitting there in a row, three guys in, in brown suits. First one is a PFC. And he takes each paper and he says, Appleby, Roof. That's all he does. He hits it. Passes it to the next guy. Shepard J.P. Passes it to the next guy. Next guy takes a look at my paper. Shepard J.P. He's, you know, hits it about three times. It's getting louder and louder, boy, them hits. Now we get to the next guy. There's three guys, see? And he's got a great big stamp. And he says, Rufus Appleby... Rupa, yeah. And he goes, he goes, he goes, he goes. Wow, 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 boom, 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 He stamps my paper, and we, you know, this is all they're doing. They're not examining us one bit. You know, they're like, they're examining our papers. Finally, we go up another long flight of stairs, and here it comes. We're getting right down to the, you know, this is really where it's really happening, because I see stretching ahead of me now a line of guys that are as, well, they're as, a jaybird stark naked as a man can conceivably be. 
And as we get inside, in, in, just inside this room, they hand us a basket, big basket, you know, like the kind you get in the supermarket. The guy's sitting there, and he says, Strip all the way down, put all your clothing in the basket. Would you please fold your clothing this way so that it will fit in the basket? It will be folded this way. Fold your trousers this way. Fold your pants this way. Put your underwear over here. I want you to put your shoes on top. You will carry your basket, and you will keep your papers in your left hand. Are there any questions? Uh, you know, I mean, I've undressed myself pretty well, you know, up to this point, so you don't ask them how you untie your shoes, although I'm sure that some guys did say, I don't know how to work the buttons yet, you know. The guys were using every conceivable way to stay out. You know, I can't dress myself. How can I go across, you know, if I can't dress myself? So anyway, you know, I take my clothes off. Rufus takes his clothes off. You know, it's very easy when you're wearing overalls, you know, a work shirt. That's all Rufus wore. He came with absolutely nothing because he had heard already, you know, don't bring no clothes, just wear nothing. And he had nothing. He just zap, pow, off comes the shirt, off comes the overalls. He takes off his big clod hoppers, no socks, into the basket. There he is. Absolutely. You can see little ears of corn sticking out of them all over you know, <laughs> your old roof, you know. So I, I take off my stuff, you know, and I'm not used to this yet, you know. I don't think there's any way to strip a man quicker of his dignity than to strip him of everything he's got on and put him in with 500 million other people. Boy, if you think you're an individual, that's the quickest way to lose it. And so, you know, that's why, you know, so many people make such a big fetish today about clothing. You know, clothing is kind of a, it, it makes everybody look different from everybody else. I take my clothes, I put it in the basket, and so we start moving forward. Now, this sounds like a joke, but this is exactly what happened. First guy says, uh, put your left hand over your left eye, read the chart. Well, the chart's about, you know, six inches from me. I says, uh, A-L-D-F-G-H-O-P-Q-L-O. Ah, it's okay. Put your right hand over your right eye, read the chart. A-L-P-C-L-D-L-Q. Okay, next man. He's stamping a thing, see? Boom, boom, boom. My paper's got butt dents and stamps and things hanging up. So I get to the next guy. This is actually what happened. The next guy says, uh, When you were a child, did you have any communicable diseases which could have caused the repercussions in the later life? Yes or no? Uh, what? No. All right, thank you very much. Uh, open your mouth, please. Stick your tongue out and say, ah. Uh, uh, I don't know what the hell he's stamping there. You know, he says, tongue, okay. You know, he's got a thing. So he says, uh, please stand up now and uh, let me see your legs. Uh, so put your knee up on this desk. And then he takes a little hammer. Pow! My leg flies up. My leg was a fink. It got me in the army. It worked. You know, he hit me and zip. It jumps up like that. He says, Okay. Me and Roof move on. Now, this is the last moment. Now, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Roof sits down. He says, sit down, please. Chair here. Here's another guy. He's a captain, full captain. You know, he looked like a weasel. And I sit down. I'm on the other chair, see, waiting in my turn. Rufus sits in the chair, and he says something to Rufus. Rufus turned to him and says, what do you mean? And he says, okay. He stamps, and Roof gets up, looks back, and walks into the next room. So I said, what the hell? What did he ask Roof? So I, I move up into the chair. It's now my turn. You want to hear my complete psychological examination? Okay. So, so, he's not even looking at me. He's got the paper, see. He's reading my paper. Turns it over. Glances up through his horn room glasses. You like girls? 
Much. Well, it depends on what girl, you know. There's a lot of girls I don't like. A lot of girls I like, you know. Uh, estrogen. Snap. Okay. <laughs> Next thing out, I go. <laughs> That's it, man. So I go into the next room, and here we are now. There's a whole, you know, the, the, it seems like the line is now in a, in a kind of a, well, actually, it's like, like Mammoth Cave in the middle of this building. They have a bare room, and all of us guys are standing around. The, whole, the line is backing up, see? There's no way to get out of this one. There's no door on the other end, and there's just the PFC sitting over there watching the crowd. See, he's not saying nothing. He's just sitting there. And when the, when the, when the room was filled, absolutely packed, he went over and he closed the door. And he hollered something out. Oh, I just met all, all set there. Tell, uh, tell uh, Captain Johnson that uh, it'll be just a couple seconds now. Okay. And he closes the door. He says, oh, I want all the papers. Pass all them papers up here to the first uh, desk here now. Let's have all the papers. So we start handing the papers. All of us are standing jaybird naked, holding a basket of our clothing in our hand, you see. And so there must have been about 300 guys in this room, all, you know, jammed in together, kind of embarrassed, you know, all standing in there, and, and the, everybody's kind of sweaty. We've been in line now. now the time, incidentally, in case you're curious, is now quarter to five. We've been standing in line since about, well, quarter to eight. And now this is the payoff. And we're in this room. It's all locked up. And all around the room, I can see calendars. You know, it shows guys with bayonets and stuff. It says, the Army loves you. Stuff like, uh, you... The Army is a crack outfit. Be a man. Be in the Army. So uh, we're standing. Just in this, nobody knows what's going to happen. See, we've all handed our papers. And he takes them all. And he takes this big pile of papers. He's got them all on the desk. Here he's going for them. That's rustling his papers. Absolutely no look on his face. Completely. He's like a monolith. He goes through the papers. Puts them in a great big yellow folder. Just a big yellow folder. And then he's got a stamp, which he goes... Bang, bang. He's stamping a folder now. You notice it's getting less and less and less personal? He's now stamping a folder. He doesn't even stamp our papers no more. So he's just stamping a folder. So we are now already in the folder. So he then picks up his little intercom phone, and he says, uh, Tell Captain Johnson it's uh, all set in here now. Yeah. Uh, tell him it's number, lot number 379J. Yeah, okay. Hangs up the phone. He sits there. Just looks at us. No look on his face any more than, you know, some guy at the pet store is looking at a new shipment of canaries. He's just got a look, you know, just sitting there looking. All of a sudden, the door opens, and with that, the PFC jumps up and he hollers, Attention! All you guys, attention! Pull in your gut! Stand at attention! Captain Johnson? Are you all set? And Captain Johnson says, yes, sir. Captain Johnson walks to the middle of the room amid 5,000 guys, and he says the following line. Will you please raise your right hand? I always associate the Army with the endless rattling of papers. Raise your right hand, repeat after me. I hereby swear to protect the Constitution and as a member of the armed forces, blah, 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 in hoc agriculus conch, e pluribus unum. So help me God. We all raise our hand. I do. You are all now members of the armed forces of the United States. Congratulations. He's gone. 
sworn in by God. We didn't even know what happened. Yeah, you know, it was, it was, all, it was so, so totally, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, informal, yet curiously formal, that none of us was really quite aware of what we were supposed to do or what anything. And then, with that, the PFC stands up to his full seven foot nine inches and says, Attention! All right, form up. Column of twos. And upon my command, you will turn right, and you will file out the door, and you will turn left at the following end of the corridor. I don't want to hear no talk. I want all you guys to keep your mouth shut. We don't have no time to mess around with you. You're now in the Army. Attention! Column of twos! Quit fooling around with them baskets. All right, forward, march, turn right. Now, come on, right, I said, not left, right. Stupid, right. And we marched off into unbelievable careers. And just as I turned right, somewhere in the far heavens, I could hear... distance, God was still bowling on that vast bowling alley of existence. And I had gotten the message, but it was too late. Cha-ching, cha-ding. Oh, I hear them sing. They is marching in. Reminds me, uh, that whole scene there. Uh, this, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the only writer that really genuinely makes sense to me when I read writings is Kafka, Franz Kafka. And uh, this, uh, you know, the, 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 speaking of Franz Kafka, did you hear what's happened uh, recently in the 
in the Royal Navy. Oh, yeah, the armed forces are really <laughs> everywhere you go these days. The Royal Navy's first mutiny case, you hear about it, in 16 years, opened today, with a testimony that the five defendants sang Irish rebel songs, swore, and enacted a mock scene from Mutiny on the Bounty. How's that for showbiz affecting life? <laughs> During the alleged uprising, the five enlisted men pleaded not guilty to the charges that arose from an incident aboard a minesweeper, the Iveston, on July 6th. The prosecutor told the court-martial that the men began their rebellion as a protest against the ship's routine. Didn't like to get up in the morning, you know. <laughs> and then they wound up by doing a scene from Mutiny on the Bounty, which, I, you know, it's a kind of a nice touch. I could just see this guy up on a poop deck hollering, Mr. Christian! Mr. Christian! Will you bring that man forward to be flogged? Mr. Christian! <laughs> Oh, you know, there's a lot of argument these days as to whether art imitates life or whether life imitates art and uh, whether or not novels don't have anything to do with life anymore and people are beginning to pattern their life on the novels they read. In fact, I know one guy who's gone completely Easy Rider. Yeah, I mean, a distinguished gentleman who saw Easy Rider and, uh, and uh, he got so inspired that he rushed out and bought himself a big motorcycle, grew himself a beard, he's got black shades, and now he roars up and down Route 22. Easy rider. Big, big lady. Can't act, but she's awful big. Uh, got a lot going for her there. You know who her father was, don't you? Yeah, Edgar Bergen, you know? Obviously, he was doing a lot more than messing around with dummies. He, you know, bringing up that big. And so, tonight, we have once again saluted man's inevitable death to the elements. So be careful when the lightning starts to thunder over your head, when the sound of rumbling bowling balls rolling down God's bowling alley. <laughs> Try to tell you something. He may be trying to tell you something. Uh, I think you better listen to it. I mean, it ain't Muzak, friends. But, uh, we'll do it until something better comes along.